For September 5th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 166. Buffering. 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 Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Back uh, on the left coast, the bleeding edge of America, not not in solar terms, not as regards the rotation of the earth, but culturally, where we banned smoking five years before New York banned smoking in its bars. That's the kind of cultural leadership I'm talking about in my uh, hometown and current town of Los Angeles, California. Uh, I am Matthew Rather. I have not been here in my uh, podcast studio Um which is a corner of my desk. I have not been here in three weeks because uh, uh, two weeks ago I was vacationing on the East Coast and we did the uh, the live the live show. I came to the East Coast. I got a got an earthquake and a hurricane, so my uh, my cup overflows like many subway tunnels overflowed with water. Uh, and then last week uh, last week I was away and the um, <laughs> I had a date with Irene. Uh, and also another date. So uh, now I'm back. Hey, it's great to be back in the studio. It's great to be back recording the show. Uh, I'm sorry if there are technical problems uh, with this episode. My my regular computer is in in the the shop. The black book, my black MacBook, which has served me well for four years. Uh, its fan finally decided to um, <laughs> uh, finally decided to give up the ghost. And uh, those Core Two Duos, those Intel chips, uh, when they overheat because the fan is not working. Uh, as a preventative measure, they just cut power to the computer. They just shut down. No, no warning, no kernel panic, no saving your work, no nothing. They just go black, which is very, very, very inconvenient when you are, say, writing things or, you know, I don't know, doing important work. Oh, who am I kidding? I don't do important work on my computer except for this podcast. So let's get to it. Panel, your question this week is... Uh, in honor of the Blu-ray re-releases, uh, re-re-re-re-re-re-re-re-releases of the re-re-remix, <laughs> wicka 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 remix of the. Uh, <laughs> we should institute the remix rule on the podcast, which is that you can say remix at any point, and the person who's talking has to, uh, you know, put it together with a, uh, you know, sick beatboxing or something. No, that's, no, that's I, a- the rule was always when it was like it was like you know, Matt, how was your day? And you just say a bunch of pedestrian my, stuff. Oh, right? my life was a terrible day. You wouldn't believe my... I had the best you day you could imagine. We were breakdancing <laughs> in the streets. I did 50 yeah, of those exactly. head spins without touching the ground with my feet. Um, so uh, if you could revise a movie panel, if you could re-release any movie on Blu-ray and revise it uh, in, some way that you, uh, in some way that you choose, preferably by adding a line of dialogue, what line would you add to what movie? Uh, coming in by cell phone, he just moved. His internet isn't even hooked up, but he is so dedicated to this podcast that he would not miss a week. I said, Pete, please take a week off. You deserve it. You've just moved. I know how exhausting that is. And he said, no, Matt, no, I am coming on the podcast and I am going to be on for the listeners because I owe them a debt. Uh, <laughs> it's, Pete, it's Pete Fenzel. Yeah, that introduction, that was the Blu-ray version of that introduction where you changed a lot of <laughs> things that happened originally. Uh, I would say there's always been this one, one movie that's really bothered me because when you go back to fix something on, on Blu-ray, what you're normally trying to do is you're trying to make more clear something that in the movie was, was left kind of bothersomely ambiguous, right? So like when Darth Vader yells, no, as he tosses the emperor into the reactor, it's that you know he's unhappy with the situation. Right. And he's like, he's, it's, it's like, oh, this is not a great day in my life. Right. Like, I'm unhappy. Right. It's important to clarify. <laughs> these things. And, and so one movie that I feel like has a really awful uh, kind of unbearable ambiguity that really needs to be fixed is if you ever saw Life is Beautiful with Roberto Benigni. Right. And yes. uh, and uh, and he's with the little kid. Right. And they're in the concentration camp and he's trying to inspire the kid with laughter to sort of cope with the situation. And, and um, I hate to spoil it. But the movie is at least 12 or 13 years old at this point, so what are you waiting for? Um, near the end of the movie, Roberto Benigni uh, is kind of taken off screen and captured and, and presumably dispatched. 
uh, and the little kid is kind of left on his own, right? But it's, it's left really bothersomely ambiguous, like, what happened, right, to Roberto Benigni. So I feel like, <laughs> like, like, before the tanks show up at the end and the kid, like, like, sees the tank and is, like, liberated from the concentration camp, we really need a line that says, I've been killed by the Nazis, and everything that's happened for the last hour and a half has been imaginary. So, uh, <laughs> 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 maybe you should reverse it. It should be like, everything I've been doing for the last hour and a half has been imaginary, and I'm currently being killed by the Nazis. <laughs> oh, I've just been killed by the Nazis. <laughs> 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 called La Vita e Bella. La Vita e Bella, right? Is that the other name? In case you need to look it up, if you need to find the masters, they're probably labeled that, so you can dig it out and you can replace uh, that, that line of dialogue. You might have to do it in Italian, too, but you should offer translations in multiple languages verbally, like in the masters, so that everybody can understand what's going on. So it's Como se dice Roberto Benini, like, Elos Kildos by los Nazis. And so on and so forth. <laughs> was was that Italian or Spanish? Los Nazis. <laughs> uh, that was that was Spanglish. That was me uh, back when I was <laughs> back when I was rocking with Rico Suave. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, excellent. That is, uh, that is, a, a well-deserved edit. We're going to, we're going to put it in. We're going to do a, uh, our own version. We'll, uh, we'll get Belinky on it and he'll make a, uh, he'll make a video. Uh, Josh McNeil is next in the alphabet. Josh, what movie do you want to fix? Well, my line is no, 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 seriously. He's Spartacus. <laughs> uh, that, that's really it. That's all I got. <laughs> Dude. Seriously, dude, I am Spartacus. Put put the hammer down. He's Spartacus. He's... <laughs> well, there's a lot of listeners who may not know this movie, and it's from this movie that's called Spartacus. <laughs> a guy named Spartacus, and he's a gladiator, and he leads a rebellion. And at the end, they are trying to arrest him and crucify him, right? Uh, and his followers step forward, and, and they claim to be Spartacus themselves in order to protect Spartacus. Uh, and also as a symbol of the fact that his movement has moved on beyond himself. The Romans, of course, respond in kind by crucifying all of them, uh, which I think kind of cuts the Gordian knot on the whole identity issue. But, uh, yeah, oh yeah well. it, didn't, it didn't really work out. Like two or three of them might have survived had they all sort of just been like, yeah, it's that guy. Um, <laughs> it would not have been nearly as moving an ending to the film, but I got to feel like when crucifixion is, is, the, is at stake, um, altruism and sort of esprit de corps tend to fall away. Well, I, I think a little man named Jesus of Nazareth might have an issue with what you're saying, Josh. I'm just saying, like, if, 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 uh, if one of the other apostles had been confused for Jesus and, you know, and had had the option, like, I'm pretty sure they, I mean, we already know, like, one of them already fingered him, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I think that story had gotten around by the time of, you know, Jesus' return to Jerusalem. So they were like, all right, if anyone asks if you know who Jesus is, you just you just walk away from that conversation. You'd be like, no, I don't know the guy. Say it as many times as you have to, up to three times, perhaps. And then if you hear a cock crow in the distance, just sort of, sort of ignore it. Oh, I mean, the, the, oh, the, the, the cock crowing. The, oh. the really good plan there is to point at Lazarus. <laughs> the real plan is you go to the crucifixion and you bring a gun, but unfortunately it has been edited out and replaced by a walkie-talkie. <laughs> Pete, don't bring a gun to a crucifixion fight. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> John Parrish is next in the alphabet. It is good to have you, sir. What up? What up? What up? I've Remix! You. What up? What up? What up? <laughs> Bringing it back, old school. All right, so in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when Indiana Jones is reunited with Marion Ravenwood, he walks into her bar in Nepal, and she slugs him in the jaw because apparently they had some romantic history together, and she says, I've learned to hate you in the last ten years. And he says, oh, I never meant to hurt you. And she says, I was a child. I was in love. It was wrong, and you knew it. And what should happen next is Indiana Jones should say, well, I hope if you ever have a child, you teach him how to fence. Because yeah, in the, oh, in the kingdom of the crystal skull, she she has a child and he he knows how to fence because his mom taught him how to how to how to fence. Yeah. So it's important it's, it's important that we it's, it's important very... that we establish at some point that 
that not only does he know how to fence, which we established pretty well in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but we should also establish beforehand that it was Indiana Jones who told her to teach her son how to fence. Because that it's, is, no, that's a very you. What you propose is a very Lucasian edit, which is to sort of. It's not even retconning. It's it's uh, it's going it's back and yeah, it's it's, it's, uh, pre, it's you know it's concomming. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's contiguous continuity. If yeah. You <laughs> oh, I will. I will. My um I I so so here's mine. I thought uh I thought maybe adding the line actually the line play it again Sam into Casablanca which does not appear in you know in that movie. <laughs> but uh <laughs> But uh here's here's what I want to do actually. I want to end Star Trek 4 uh in a slightly different way. Right when they've when they've saved the whales and brought them back to the future and they've uh, you know beamed them into the ocean and the weird probe from far away has has gone and uh, you know um, Admiral Kirk is demoted to captain as punishment for insubordination uh, but you know with a stirring speech about ecological responsibility and how uh, he has saved humanity from its own short sightedness uh, and we are forever in your debt. I want I want Kirk I want a close up on Kirk where he looks to camera winks and says and we had a whale of a time and it, <laughs> and it cuts to black there and rather than you know what I mean rather than the like the kind of a bit slightly sanctimonious celebration over the whole earth that you know that follows that just uh, just earth uh, just Kirk we had a whale of a time and uh, cut to black. Uh, that's my uh, that's my vote for a uh, for a con con, or you know, yeah. if- I would I would love to either in the series or any of the movies just have him at one point ask someone to book him a hotel room, <laughs> and save you know up to fifty percent or whatever the line is. Um, <laughs> like- <laughs> well, ra- rather that that sort of line would really only work if it was accompanied by music that was contemporaneous to the year nineteen eighty seven, which they travel back to like. Van Halen's Beautiful Girls or something like sure. Whale of a Time. <laughs> Wink down 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 Um I actually the price line thing makes me think of something and this is not something that we had planned to talk about but uh maybe it'll be good for 5 minutes. What do you what do you think of this? Have you noticed the huge um the just the huge resurgence of of I shouldn't even say resurgence, the kind of the rise of product placement in contemporary television in, in not even a subtle way, not even like the character happens to be smoking Marlboros or, well, I guess they'd never do it with cigarettes or drinking a Coke or something like that. But like full on, hey, this is a this is a really roomy. This is a really spacious car. It's it's luxurious and convenient. Uh, like and check uh, out this fancy GPS. Yeah, yeah. There have been <laughs> actually there have been a couple of shows, and they've all been cable shows. So um, Burn Notice has done a couple of car product placements. It's all over USA, man. That's- yeah, uh, uh, White Collar does the uh, does the thing because they have the uh, the ankle bracelet, and you know the the con man is on the ankle bracelet, and so like let's find this on the thing. Uh, I saw I saw one on Warehouse 13, which is on on Sci-Fi. Where um, uh, Claudia is driving a Prius, and it's the company Prius, and she wishes she could have one of her own because this Prius is so great. And do you have? And like, it's always. Oh, and I just saw one on Chuck. I've been watching. Uh, I've been watching my DVR copies of the last season of Chuck because apparently I'm out of everything else on my DVR. Uh, well, to add nothing to the analysis, but two more items to the list. There are two particularly galling examples. One which I actually read about in an article on uh, Slate, of all places, several months ago about the Hawaii Five-0 reboot. Is that still on the air? Is that off the air? Did that go away? Is it still no, I around? Think it, I think it did okay. It was on CBS. I all think right. it did okay last year. I think it's coming back. Okay, so it's coming back. So the Hawaii Five-0 reboot, and one character is mentioning something to another character, and uh, they ask, really? Are you sure? And the first guy says, yeah, you can bing it. Oh, I, I should. Oh, I should. I should have. I should have thought. Uh, Gossip Girl, 
which you know, as you know, is the subject of a uh, whole other podcast on our network. Um, Gossip Girl had all kinds of Microsoft uh, product placements, including one for the Microsoft Kin, where they like <laughs> where they showed people using it, and I think they sold like three hundred units of that phone, and it was it was discontinued, uh, and like like discontinued that like they shut off the service, and everyone had to buy a new <laughs> phone because your Kin would not work anymore after a certain point. Um, but. Uh, the other example I want to bring up, and this I just want to touch on this one real quick because it's particularly, uh, particularly not not galling. It's sort of like a wink at the obviousness of it, but it's it's the kind of product placement you almost think the the sponsors would regret. Is on Breaking Bad. There have been a couple instances of product placement this season, but they've been particularly sort of disturbing. the The first one that comes to mind is. There's one character in the current season who is recovering from a uh, from a gunshot wound. So he's lying in bed, you know, unable to walk, and he, uh, you know, need, needs assistance in going to the bathroom. So he's he's browsing on his laptop all day, and there's a, a shot of him from the side of the bed where he places the laptop on on the bed itself with the monitor up, and you can see the Sony Vio logo on the back. And your first thought is, oh, product placement, obvious. And then he he asks his wife, "Hey, I I need a little help here." So she she puts the bedpan under him, and he works his shorts down. And the Vio screen is obscuring his uh, his junk during this process. <laughs> 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 and, and and you have to. I saw this, and I was I was sort of stunned and delighted and wondering, like, is this the sort of thing Sony signed off on? Like, did they get a preview of this and were like? Eh, it's the best we're gonna get. Okay, we're we're fine with it. Or did they? Or did the producers like did Vince Gilligan just sneak this in and be like, "Hey, Sony Vio, prominent placement. Look, the the logo's nice and clear right there. Everyone sees it. Like several seconds panned right in. Everyone, yeah, everyone's staring right at the spot where the logo is. <laughs> they almost certainly had to approve that. That had to be at least in script form, right? Like. Somebody from Sony had to approve that if they were going to do the placement. I would wager, right? Yeah, I'm sure these. I'm sure these well, deals like, are negotiated six ways from Sunday. Yeah, and and for product placement like that, I mean, it's not like the computer was the subject of a discussion about how great the computer was. Like that's a different thing. That's just that's just sort placing, of general awareness, right? Yeah, it's placing objects in the world the way that the way that the world of house is full of Apple products, including that like Apple Hi-Fi which was discontinued like house long after it was discontinued house had one in his office, right? Um just sort of sitting there. But there but then there's like yeah, there's the there's the the um like repeating the slogan of the thing or you know touting the features of the thing my other one from gossip girl was for bing also they i guess bing did a deal <laughs> with them and uh characters actually said as a line of dialogue it's like oh where is that where is that society masked ball tonight they said on gossip girl and you know little jenny would type it into her computer and said oh i'll put it into bing and you're done <laughs> And you're done. And you're done. Bing. And Uh. you're done. And like this happened more than once uh, throughout, I think, season three of Gossip Girl. And, you know, it's uh, uh, right. It's it's egregious, right? Because it it rips you right. Well, it has an alienating effect. I I won't say that it's good or bad because I suppose we should make positive and not normative claims about the things that we we analyze, but uh, it it rips you right out of the of the story if you are in a story at all, right? When you're watching TV, I don't know. Maybe you're much more sophisticated than I am, but I'm a good 19th century audience member, and I like to be, uh, you know, kind of swept up in the story that I'm that I'm experiencing. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, it definitely took me out of the story. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> took you out of Gossip Girl. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. All those Gossip Girl episodes that I've watched. I've uh, definitely been really made worse by the uh, by the, the mentioning of all the different products that are in them. I just wanted to give a, an example, another example from Breaking Bad, though, quickly, which was when the guy goes on for a long time about how, no, this is an American standard bathtub. And American standard bathtubs are made with top-quality materials, and they don't deteriorate when exposed to corrosive elements or acids. So don't worry about it as long as you've got American standard. Right? So that's all I know about Breaking Bad. Is there's, a, there's a scene where a bathtub is like inadequate to the task of containing a noxious chemical, um, and as such, like that would be prime prime real estate for a bathtub. Uh, well, I, 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 can someone walk me through the economics of bathtub product placement? 
like how many people actually choose their bathtub and how many of them watch Breaking Bad? Like, what does that Venn diagram look like? Do you, do you really want to know? Because it's probably it's pretty interesting, right? Yeah. So the no, people I'm genuinely who, the pe- Yeah. So, so the people who choose bathtubs for houses, for the most part, are going to be contractors, right? And people working with contractors. So it'll probably be real estate developers working with contractors who are putting the houses together to sell to people, right? Because people don't usually, I mean, sometimes people get a bathtub and sometimes they improve their bathtub, but especially over the course of the last 15 years and less so now. So if you were to see a bathtub uh, product placement on a TV show, it's much more likely to have happened in like 2005 or 2006, right? Than it would be to happen now because they're not making as many new homes. But if they're making new homes, they're putting bathtubs in them. What they want to do is they want to reach the people who, um, who make the decisions as to what kind of bathtubs to put in the homes. Right. And in this case, that means it's going to be like project managers at real estate development firms. Right. And also contractors and people who are working in kind of developing and selling these these different developments that they're making. Right. So the cycle goes. um, It's not that you just want to sell it to them. You want to improve their opinion of it in an emotional sense. Right. You want to build their favorability toward it. So you're going to try to figure out, okay, well, what kind of TV shows do people watch? Where do they go when they go online? You, You find a bunch of them. You ask them a bunch of questions. You track their social media activity. Right, you do all this stuff. You hire an agency and do all these things, and you figure out. And you're like, okay, these are the influencers on bathtub purchasing, and you can do this. Like, you can pay money. Companies pay money and do this stuff, right? And you, Josh, you oh, probably yeah. have encountered it too. Although we shouldn't talk about specific stuff and work. John and his work as well, right? Like, yes, this, this, so, this is, so, it's, yeah. it's in fact, it's in fact, sim, uh, not directly what I do, but it's adjacent to what I do for a living. So, yeah, this this is the yeah. sort of thing that happens. Yeah. So, like, for example, right, one good example would be just sort of retroactively looking back. Um, if you look at the numbers for who suffered the most, what demographics suffered the most from the crash in the housing market, right? Like, who lost the most jobs, right? Uh, Hispanic men, right? Like, Latin, Latin, Latin American men who are living in the United States, Latino, Chicano, what have you. Uh, they lost a ton of jobs because they were very disproportionately employed in construction and not necessarily all of them on like a base level. So maybe, you know, you put an advertisement for a, or a product placement for some kind of tub in, in like a, in a Telemundo show, right? Maybe you put it on like a, um, on a, on like Sabado Gigante or something, right? Or like something airing in the United States that, you know, span like a George Lopez. Maybe George Lopez would have been a great example if you're trying to reach that market, if you're trying to reach like contractors and real estate development people, um, in certain parts of the country that have like a lot of investment by Latin American uh, developers, then like that would be a great place to advertise it. Um, it probably would be dudes, right? It's probably not women um, that are because real estate and construction was like very uh, male or male stilted business, which you see in the numbers from who gets who got laid off during the, the recession, right? Um, so you would go on football football games. You probably get a Super Bowl ad if you're really crazy. Right. Um, although if you want to do product placement, that doesn't work so well. You might want to get like a, a funny gag on like Fox where like Carrie Bradshaw's in a bathtub. Right. And he's like scrubbing his bald head with it. And it's like a, and it's sponsored by like, you know, Maytag bathtubs or whatever. Right. Like this bathtub sure is comfy. It's ergonomically designed. That's crazy. You know, like that. That's how you no. would go about it. That's did you say Carrie Bradshaw from Ter- Sex and the Terry, City? Terry, Terry Bradshaw. Because that, the, I don't think a lot of contractors watch Sex and the City. <laughs> well, back in 2005, they did. It was a different <laughs> world back then. Insofar as much as Sex and the City was still on the air. I think it was in 2005. Um, but yeah, but you just want to find out where they, where they go. You want to track who you want to contact. Because that's a very specialized group of people. Right, um, that you're trying to reach, and um, you might also just like have industry events, right, and like talk to them in person. But if you want to do product placement on TV, I would figure out what demographics are disproportionately invested in those businesses, and I would target those demographics with the advertising, and now, not the advertising, add, the product placement. I will add that while the market for bathtubs may be rather slow and sort of stagnant and very inelastic, the market for bathtub liners is probably a little more dynamic because once you have a bathtub, it's so long as it's not like a weird clawfoot tub or, you know, something made of decaying substandard materials, it's probably going to last for a while. So really, the, the only upgrades you really need are to occasionally maybe reline it if it gets really yellowed or disgusting looking and you just want to put a more modern fitting over top of it, which apparently isn't that hard to do. So that might be something you could market more toward suburban homeowners or people right. who have... 
or people who are, you know, young rising professionals who have just bought a, an older home and, and want to modernize it and spruce it up a little, which I think would fit a little more in line with the, I, I think, the projected audience of Breaking Bad or any of the AMC niche cable series that target primarily, uh, for lack of a better word, hipsters. Do you know, what kind of bathtub liner do you have, John? Do you know? I don't know. I rent. So I I have uh, I have whatever the the management company deemed fit. Fair enough. I was gonna I was gonna say because it's great. I mean those features the the kind of attraction you get, but really a luxury experience. It's like you're in a spa. <laughs> you know that's. I know, right? I wonder. Yeah. What would they, what would we want to do product placement for here? Like if we were to do product placement, like for our audience, considering who our audience is, and it's mostly girls between the ages of 12 and 15, right? <laughs> <laughs> Facebook fan page tells us, um, which is ridiculous. No, well, no, no, no. Like, well I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, Pete, hang on. Let me just adjust the gain on my uh, Samson Desktop Go mic here, which uh, provides <laughs> pretty amazing clarity, even even given the comfortable distance that I'm I'm sitting from this this microphone. It provides... I was, about to, I was, I was about to say, John, and also a, like an amazing frequency response. Your your chocolatey baritone comes through with uh, with uh, you know amazing precision. Thank you, but I mean, well, if we were doing this event live, it would e- even has omnidirectional recording features, so all of us sitting around the mic could speak with with equal clarity. Wow, God, hey, John, where can I get me one of them? <laughs> well, it's great. You can order it. Online at Amazon.com or through any major electronics retailer. Don't Sorry, order guys. anything. I was just <laughs> don't order anything through Amazon.com and overthinking it. At least not until we tell you to, because they've uh, <laughs> they've canceled their affiliate program in California. Because California is uh, California oh. has the t- temerity to uh, try to tax them, and, you know, <laughs> and so their response is to just like shut down pretty much all business activity <laughs> in California, other than shipping products into it. Um, there be no law upon the sea. Yar, <laughs> yar. So, um, so yeah. So uh, as of this, as of this podcast, until further notice, uh, you can just go straight to the site. You don't have to click through overthinking it. Um, but hey, well, one uh, thing, if I've learned pa- anything our- from listening to podcasts, it's that the thing we should really be selling is Audible.com. <laughs> no, 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 no! Don't, don't say those words until they're paying us a hefty $60 CPM for our uh, thing. And we'll do, oh, we'll do the Audible recommendations like you hear on every other goddamn podcast that you listen to. We will, we will tout the, uh, the features of it. I mean, look, I, uh, you can guess how I feel about Audible because I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm, I'm primed to like things that come through my headphones. So, uh, but, uh, no, until they're actually an advertiser, um, I, I, I am officially indifferent to their service. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we can we can acknowledge from our armchair that they provide a good service, even if they're not paying us for it. They they are not paying us for it. I actually uh, I emailed a couple people. You actually might hear a couple advertisements on overthinking it in the next month or so, because uh, <laughs> I've been talking I've been talking to uh, on the podcast. I mean, I, I've been talking to some people who who want to reach our audience of twelve to fifteen year old girls and sell them like. Uh, Hello Kitty pencil cases or, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I'm actually so out of touch uh, that I don't even know what... uh, 14-year-olds, I think it's like makeup at this point, right? Like the uh, world has moved on since we were that age. You know what it is? I want to take a couple seconds to tell you about the Microsoft Kin. It has a whole revolutionary (laughs) system. Dude, (laughs) it's land. They're not making any more. It's land. That's what they're selling. (laughs) The great, uh, the great American West. It's a dream. It's a dream that comes with a piece of paper. Uh, I got to get those leads. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Land. They're not making any more. Uh, yeah. You know, there in the New York Times Magazine today, there was a uh, there's an article on a 15 uh, year old girl who is a style blogger. Um, who I actually had heard of because she was also the 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 subject of a New Yorker. Uh, profile and I read that magazine um, and I was like my god what does it take to get I mean I guess we're too old I guess that's the problem why overthinking it does not garner any mainstream media attention because we're what are you too- talking about 
We got all sorts of. We were in the Economist like a month ago. <laughs> I guess so. We were. We were in the Economist, and there was that. There was that strong female characters article in the New York Times that blatantly ripped off all of Shana's work from three years ago. Well, yes, of course, but you know, like <laughs> you know, imitation, we were on imitation. Imitation Sorry. is the sincerest form of flattery. That's nice. Well, then, New York Times, you have flattered us more than I can say. <laughs> so, wait. So, speaking of imitation, can I can I change the subject just a little bit? Please. I, I didn't mean okay. to hijack us, but I kind of did. Oh, no, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I had another topic I wanted to toss your way, and it's so rare that I have a topic prepared ahead of time that I really <laughs> felt special about this one. <laughs> so, okay. So, I saw the movie The Death this weekend. Right, and the deck is a spy adventure action thriller uh, suspense type movie um, about Israeli Mossad spies in in East Berlin in the '60s, trying to apprehend uh, the equivalent of Dr. Mengele, like the a butcherous Nazi uh, experimenter um, who is hiding as a doctor there. And right, and, and it's about um, the memory of these events uh, as being recalled in the present or 1997, rather, by, like, Helen Mirren and a variety of other, like, uh, stately actors and actresses of stage and screen, right, as they go back and recount whether the version of the story they've told the public is the version that actually happens. Now, I don't want to talk about that movie. It's a niche movie. Um, you know, you might want to see it. You might not. Um, I wasn't a huge fan. I saw it with John Levin, who told me to say that he says hi to everybody on the podcast. So John Levin says hi to everybody in the world. Um, I saw it with him, and, I saw, and he liked it, right? And I saw it with his wife, and, and she liked it as well. Emily liked it as well. Um, but I didn't like it. And, and part of why I didn't like it, and this is, and this is the part of the movie that I think I wanted to talk about, which is that there are a number of sequences in the movie that are action set pieces, right? And they're not just action set pieces. They're also sort of relationship set pieces. They're kind of like self-contained vignettes that happen in the flashback sequence, uh, while the spies are kind of trying to undertake their mission. And each one of these little vignettes stands alone. Um, and it isn't really related to anything that comes before or after it. And it struck me watching the movie that all of these vignettes like really, really felt like levels from video games, right? Like that, like, like there's a lot of talk about how movies are becoming like video games because of the level of noise and, and the level of, of computer generated graphics and the sort of vapid lack of a story. Like, like the classic movie that is a video game is like Transformers, right? Like that's like Michael <laughs> Bay makes video game movies, but this is like a pretty serious movie. And yet there's like a section in the middle where it's like, okay, Sam Worthington, it's going to take 14 seconds for this train to pass by this station. Soviet guards won't be able to see you for the 14 seconds. You need to take these wire cutters and walk over that fence and like cut that fence for 14 seconds, but then go back and hide behind this pillar until the next train comes. When the next train comes, you have 14 seconds to go out and do it again. And like this happens. And then of course you like, you know, the alarm gets tripped. Like it always does when I play Goldeneye, right? And the guy hits the big red button or like whenever I'm trying to play like left for dead, the zombies are all over the place. I'm like, ah, why did I even get into this line of work? I have no you gotta, talent you gotta, Pete, you got to avoid the car alarms. The car alarms bring the zombies. Car, nobody pays attention to car alarms, like, ever. Why do the zombies, why do the people establish a, a, like, pay, a faculty to pay attention to car alarms after they've died and been reanimated by some sort of virus? <laughs> and they never had it in life. And they never cared. I just don't get it. I don't get it. But anyway, so, um, but it feels a lot like a video game scene. And there's another scene, there's a lot of scenes that are like Krav Maga fight scenes just between the main characters as they're training, right? They don't really have any sort of um, effect on the rest of the game, or the game, the rest of the movie. But it's like punch, punch, block, block, reversal scene, <laughs> right? So that's, that's what happens. You know, and it's like, it's like, do it again, like round two, like fight, boom, 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 boom done. The, f- the funniest one is, and well, there's well, the one at the very end, which I'm kind of loath to reveal because I feel like Blinky needs to write about it because it's one of the worst fight scenes ever. But, um, but the, the other one is like there's this weird mini game, this like weird bonus mini game they play at the end where the Nazi doctor is chained to a radiator, tied up to a radiator, and they have to feed him. And he, like, doesn't want to be fed. And he, like, moves his head around. And they have to, like, figure out how to get the spoon into his mouth. And all the while, like, whenever his tape is off his mouth, he's, like, spitting Nazi lies into you and, like, trying to influence you, right? And it's, like, this weird, this weird game where, like, each individual player takes turns trying to feed the Nazi doctor without, like, questioning their identity and their meaning in life. And it feels, like, very, like, uh, again, this is not something that has a, has a, a dramatic effect on the motion of the plot. I mean, it helps set the mood, I suppose. But, it, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, rather you're big into the drama and you sort of know what I'm talking about. Like, there's some quality that these events have that uh, speaks to me more of a paradigm of, like, you know, obstacle resolution, uh, like obstacle overcoming 
rather than like conflict resolution, right? Um, sure. There, there's, that, not, there's sort of like, yeah. That is, that is to say they are – they're melodramatic, right? They're driven entirely by plot, by the, by the machinations of plot and, and have nothing to do with sort of illuminating, uh, illuminating character or kind of telling us uh, – what you're saying I think is that they kind of lack a metaphorical dimension that, that we take as, as kind of important in art, right? In dramatic yeah, I mean, art. I think, I think that they, they might have it. But because of their association, in my mind, with video games that I've actually played, except for the Nazi doctor feeding one, which I think is just some flash game that was on Soapbox.com and like <laughs> <laughs> um, right next to like videos of Queer Duck or whatever, um, I'm, I'm like totally mixing up my different trashy defunct um, uh, flash animation websites from the early aughts. But I digress. Um, but no, I think because the metaphorical dimension of the train scene might be, oh, look at like the obstacles and the barriers that we have to face and like the way that society has hemmed us in. But because it feels like you're playing Modern Warfare 2 while you're watching it, the metaphorical resonances of Modern Warfare 2. And I guess this is sort of like a readership. I mean, as a new critic, of course, you don't want to in- bring in this kind of criticism of the movie. You know, certain schools would say, well, what's the intention of the people making the movie? Right, like, and I'd say, well, maybe the director probably plays a lot of video games. The director's probably a younger person, maybe, or maybe something along those lines. Um, well, I'll, I'll, so maybe their intention is, but yeah, Fenzel, I'll, I'll add two things. First, it, the the making movies like video games isn't isn't just something. I mean, you mentioned Michael Bay kind of as a toss off, but it isn't just something he does. Christopher Nolan, for instance, and I don't know where you'd put him on the scale of serious directors, where you know Michael Bay is a zero and Werner Herzog is a ten or or what have you. But Christopher Nolan, for instance, it's, it's something I noticed about particularly both The Dark Knight, where there's that scene where uh, Batman is scanning the building where Joker has some hostages, and it's a sort of 3D sonar, cell phone, radar wave thing that's panning up the, the length of the building while Morgan Freeman is narrating in his ear. And the thing I thought while watching it in the theater was, wow, this looks like a cutscene from the video game of this movie. It's like they're they're almost yeah. auditioning for that in ahead of time. And the second thing, which we actually all talked about on the Inception podcast, was Inception itself. It's like, oh, here's the here's the warehouse level, here's the hotel level, here's the you know ice facility level. Yeah, somewhere. didn't it remind you of the snow fort in Contra, in the NES Contra? It really did. <laughs> <me>. <laughs> It reminded actually, me of the Snowford and Crystallis, actually, yeah. <laughs> or in uh, in the in the bad N sixty four GoldenEye two. What was it like? Tomorrow <laughs> never dies. That, yeah, yeah. I, I had I had similar I had similar reactions to that. That you know, first we were in a hotel, now we were in a we were in a in a, in a snow fort. And I think what particularly made it evocative was a the 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 pause for breath that we got between the two. It's like slam bang action climax pause. And now we're in a new scene. And B, the lack of transition. Thank you, thank you, Mario. But our princess is in another castle. <laughs> yeah, like, like, like there wasn't any real transition because you know there there are different sequences of a dream, so there literally can't be any travel. One second you're in one, the next second you're in the other, and that's that's similar to you know the video game loading process where there is, if anything, just a notional cutscene that shepherds you between the two, and then you know in the last stage you're in a volcano now in this stage you're on an airship and now you have to fight different enemies what have you movies all movie transition transition should just be uh, replaced by progress bars that proceed from left <laughs> to right across the screen <laughs> No, they should do it like they should do it like Secret of Mana, where the characters have to get into a cannon and they're fired up into the sky, and you see the earth like rotating below you as you like land in the location that you're traveling to. Uh, Definitely. Rather, rather that be that that wouldn't be as funny if it weren't the inevitable fate of the movie industry. Yeah. So. Right. <laughs> Well, it's you know I can't take credit. It's Dave Schechner who years and years ago uh, suggested in co- in a conversation with me that the like the emblem of our generation is a progress bar moving from left to right across uh, <laughs> across the screen. Because think of how much time you spend uh, staring at that. But uh, it's like to- Ray Liotta goes into the nightclub and it's like buffering, buffering. <laughs> buffering. <laughs> but uh, Fenzel, to to bring it back to your to your point about the. Like the the process of you know watching someone go through a train and you know cut through a wire fence and evade Soviet guards, that's while the typology that we is typology a word? I'm going to stick with it. While the typology we yeah, view that through might be might be video game influenced because of our generation, it's not 
it's not unique to this generation. And the example that that leaps to mind for me, because I've written about it on my own blog, is the uh, the, the 1967 French film Le Samurai. If you've seen it, the the Alain Delon film, which is about you know Alain Delon is this you know gorgeous you know ice cold French hitman who kills people for the French mob, and then it's funny it's funny that you call the Alain Delon film because I think of it as the Jean Pierre Melville film. Uh, Right, but um, I mean, it's, it, but it, you know, that's because I couldn't remember who the director was off the but, top of my head. Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't actually remember who the actor was. Probably, if you Wait, so, is my, this the movie my, that our, the Robert De Niro movie Ronin is based on, or n- n- but in any, well, that's so also any, about a hitman, and he's, he's supposed to be like a samurai, right? I'm confused. Never mind. Continue. <laughs> So in any case, Le Samurai is also very much about process because we spend a, it's we almost never get inside the main character Jeff's head. We instead we just watch him go through go through each thing that he does. You know, he's sitting in bed, he gets a phone call, he goes to his contacts to get an alibi, he goes to other contacts to get the gun and the car that he's going to use to get away. He goes and completes the job. He goes and he goes back to his apartment. The cops show up. The cops arrest everybody. The cops interrogate him. They call check on his ally, etc. If you watch the movie, it's very much broken down into the specific steps that both sides, that the criminals and the cops take to sort of circle around each other. And there's very little engagement with character, except insofar as the character is revealed through the process. Like when Jeff goes to his girlfriend's house and is like, all right, if anyone asks, I was here between, you know, 10 p.m. and 3 a.m., and she says, all right, are you going to come back after you've done your job? And he says, no, I'm just going to go home. And so you get a little bit of character there, but not like not really, really character. You have to really be looking for it. So not having seen the debt, I can't comment on whether that was what the director intended. But I do want to add that the that the focus on process for its own sake is not necessarily an avoidance of character. And it's not necessarily an artifact of a video game generation. Interesting, interesting. Well, I guess my, my reaction to that is like, okay, well, then how does our... Because clearly for me, my experience with video games colored the way that I understood what I was watching, right? And is this something that we should take into account um, when, I mean, when we're making film, which we do, rather than complain about other people making it? Um, no, we, 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 all of us, we've made, we make our share of art, definitely. Um, but so I'm not saying that we never do anything, but it's like in the creation of art... Um, should you be conscious of that, right? Should you be conscious of the fact that, like, like, is there an issue if I'm creating something in an imitation of something else, right, which is the most common way of going about starting an artistic project. It's like, okay, I'm going to imitate this other thing, right? Um, do you have to understand that the resonances, because of the different kinds of ways that people engage with visual media now, are going to be that much different? I mean, it seems like a pretty obvious question, I guess, but... It is and it isn't an obvious question. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say, Pete, is in a way, all questions sure. are obvious. <laughs> but um, uh, rather than saying what should or shouldn't be, I, I, I think we can say that there's a continuum of sort of awareness of, of the audience from right from from what I'll call pure sort of artistic expression, which is like, this is just the product of my, this is just the product of my mind and, uh, you know, is offered without recourse to what anyone might think of it to, uh, well, to on the other side, maybe like commercials, you know, where the whole point is, is, uh, the, the response of the audience and that, that like there, that your awareness, uh, as a creator of any kind of, of work, of creative work, your your awareness of the audience will fall somewhere um, will fall somewhere on that spectrum, and that different, um, uh, or at least you, your idea of of uh, your awareness of the audience, right? Because I I don't know, I'm not sure. Maybe it wasn't a young director making the dead. It didn't seem like a no, super young. Yeah, it didn't seem like a super young movie. To me, uh, like I like I was a little curious, like where the three of you thought uh, that would be like a good time movie going out <laughs> to like, hey, well, you know, this is an exciting way. Yeah, well, I guess yeah. actually, you know, it's actually pertinent. You know why? It's because the dead has been really heavily advertised on Breaking Bad. 
Um, and that's, and that is something that John and Emily watched. And then though they mentioned it, they actually told me the TV shows that they watched that, that the debt was being advertised heavily on. So for them, the debt coming out in this general release was like a big deal because they'd been targeted as people who were going to watch it because they liked Breaking Bad. Whereas I had never heard of it before. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. It sort of goes back to what we were talking about before about people yeah, that's kinda, finding that's out where like the audience the way- is. This this weekend something similar happened to me because I got an email that Jonathan Colton's album was released and I went and bought it right away. Uh, so, so so marketing works in other in other it ways. Does. Marketing does work. Fenzel, this this resonance that you talk about may have less to do with the 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 video gameization, if I can invent a terrible word, of movies. And have more to do with the cinematization, if I can invent another terrible word, of video games. Because it was really in the like the mid to actually not the mid, the late nineties, that first person sort of frame rendering technology got advanced enough that it was possible to really create a first person shooter experience that sort of felt like a movie. And Goldeneye is really was was real well I mean there was Doom and Wolfenstein of course but Goldeneye I think was really one of the one of the watershed moments in terms of popularity and accessibility and and sort of pr- creating a fun environment such that I I don't think you could like how would you how would you do a shootout on a train now that didn't evoke the you know the train sequence on Goldeneye I was watching the Captain America movie which has a shootout on a train and I was thinking that and I'm pretty sure the director didn't, didn't have that in mind but it's just it's just such an endemic sequence because, you know, video games have become much more uh, uh, cinematic over the last 15, 20 years. So I, I, I think it's and I think it's just, you know, us having so much exposure to video games. That's the lens through which we view movies now as opposed to the other way around. That that, John, I think you're right on. You're right on with that. And that's like imagine imagine this. Um, uh, say it's 25 years ago and I'm going to make a movie in which uh, – a baby carriage, you know, rolls down a set of stairs. You know, there's a there's a very s- s- specific set of references that's involved in that. And what's mm-hmm. happened is that, uh, you know, what I mean to to uh, Potemkin and to the Untouchables. You know, yeah. um, and the, uh, <laughs> you know, and what's happened is that the the number of kind of visual media that can be referenced by. Um, uh, that can be referenced by other works in visual media has expanded. You know what I mean? And you're not you're not just competing. You're not just kind of interacting in an intertextual world that is the medium you're working in. You're inter- you're uh, in an intertextual environment that is the whole freaking uh, set of kind of like visual practice and screen. And not- not only have the has the list of references expanded, but our accessibility to that list has expanded with you know growing information technology. It's that that notion of knowledge being as as you put it rather a mile wide and an inch deep, so sure. that everyone everyone can know a little bit about something. So when Tarantino references Twisted Little Nerve in uh, in one of his movies, it's like oh that's the opening score to Twisted Little Nerve. Yeah, oh big nice work Tarantino. Oh, look at a big man. So. <laughs> Which was exactly so when I would do the baby carriage scene, the baby carriage is going to be on the railing, and there's going to be like a point multiplier and the little balance bar and the offspring. <laughs> <is insane>, right? <laughs> 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 sorry, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's crazy taxi. That's and it actually crazy <laughs> <laughs> taxi. Um, oh boy, ice cream, said the little girl, <laughs> greedily eyeing the cone. <laughs> that's a deep cut. That's a deep cut. Um, yeah, that, uh, that's a deep cut to, to Fenzel's Crazy Taxi fan fiction. Oh, I didn't write that. We just found oh. that. I did not write that. Oh, that was sorry. beautiful, though. I no, I just showed it. it to everybody I knew. Blinky found it, too. It was really funny. Yeah, and yeah, as, you know, and as the mother and as the mother knelt over the the you know bloody corpse of her little girl, ice cream splattered, uh, mingled with brains on the, on the pavement. They thought they heard far, far away a voice yelling, "Crazy taxi." <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly how it goes, but that's the general idea. Yes, it's a piece of fan fiction written from the perspective of a mother and daughter who are in a horrible car accident because somebody is getting point bonuses for taking people like through the middle of the park and over curbs to their destinations in a taxi cab as fast as possible. 
So, yes. Yeah, I'd love to see a crazy taxi movie. I think that would be really exciting. It would be really so, like a Hitchcock kind of thing. So, Pete, like, I, I saw... Didn't Queen Latifah already make that? Oh, that's right. With Jimmy Fallon, yeah. Jimmy Fallon's short-lived uh, film career. Queen Latifah, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I saw a, a different film but but uh, this weekend, but it may be um, that it has more in common than I thought uh, with the high art, you know, with the art house movie that you saw. I saw uh, the cinematic masterpiece Columbiana, this... Um, you know, the, which is which we, which we talked about last week. With yeah, Timothy you did. Swan. You mentioned it. Yeah, you, maybe the audio was cutting out a little bit by that point, so I did. It was a long, strange trip. I didn't catch. Though I, I listened to the, I listened through to the end of the episode. I, you know, I took it as a kind of like Dadaist, uh, you know, as a Dadaist kind of sound experiment. But um, the. Uh, which is a, a film, I think Colombiana is a film about, uh, you know, long lingering shots on Zoe Saldana's body uh, as she does things um, like, you know, crawling out of like a lot of crawling in and out of air ducts in that uh, in that film um, with, you know, yeah, a long air ducts. <laughs> yeah, with a long slender leg kind of emerging, you know, from air ducts and bending to like find the floor and like, you know, Zoe Saldana crawling spider-like out of the uh, out of the air duct, and then and then there's like one fight at the end, and then she kills the bad guy. But so this is this is a film that's kind of much like yours. It's told in this episodic way with like uh, with sort of mini missions, um, yes. except that they don't even have they don't even have the Holocaust, you know, to like, <laughs> to make them, the, to make them serious art. No, they don't even have a kind of master narrative uniting them. The thing about Colombiana is that, right, all the, all the missions prior to the final one, it's not like they're mini bosses and they're leading up to the final boss. Uh, it's that they are, um, uh, it's that they are totally, <laughs> they're totally unrelated to, um, to the final boss, except insofar as uh, they're being done by Zoe Saldana, right? And that's... Uh, I... So it would be like if you went to watch Gilligan's Island and, like, the first 25 episodes were all him, like, going on other boat trips. Yes. Yeah, like, yeah. That... Like, hey, like, this, these are the Maldives. These are great. I've never seen them before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. And that, like... Um... You know there there are other characters, but they don't. I mean, there's there's a movie without characters too. I mean, there's a movie uh, where characters are. Well, there are two ways to do it. Like, there's a very good way, which is like *Le Samurai*, which is that character. It's it's intensely procedural, but character is revealed through procedure. And then there's then there's the kind of the melodramatic way where the characters are functions. You know what I mean? Um, you know, when when he's talking to his girlfriend, you get the sense that there is a history there, you know, and that that it is sort of even though it's not alluded to and it doesn't have to be spelled spelled out for you, it kind of hangs in the air in their interaction. And that is I think that is, I think, a quality of good storytelling, a quality that I, uh, you know, that I like a lot in stories where they don't. I've talked about the kind of uh, procedural, the bad moment in bad procedural television where it's like, you know. When I the kind of the Batman moment, you know, when I was a child, I saw my parents gunned down by cops, and that's when I by, gunned down by criminals, and that's when I knew I wanted to be a cop, you know. Uh, but um, there is but yeah, a good I mean, way. It's, it's, some, it's something that, that can be done well. Like for instance, there's there's this other French film. It's a more recent one about a uh, it's about a British soldier who becomes a driver for like crime syndicates, and he transports packages for them, and he has very strict rules about how he won't look in the package. <laughs> But one time, that's right. in the right. package, and it turns out to oh, so much trouble emerges from it. I forget what it's called, but Jason Statham's in, and it's all about him transporting things and then <laughs> himself out of trouble. And uh, the name will come to me. It's called not. It's called um, all about my mother. Orichu mama también. I think is what. It's called. <laughs> well. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it? Um, also has a wonderful bus station grease fight, by the way, which is the <laughs> yeah. best bus station grease fight on film. Um, if you if you want to if you want to see Jason Statham shirtless and covered in grease, which I think about half our audience would, that is the movie in which to see it. <laughs> oh, John, the yeah. half that's not fourteen and fifteen year old girls. Yeah. No, he's an old uh, sketchy dude. 
<laughs> I mean, no joke. That uh, that demo is probably actually more like fourteen or fifteen percent of our audience because we've done <laughs> we've done a little polling and and uh, we are um, we are eighty percent of us are uh, eighteen to thirty four year old college educated males. So <laughs> you know, yeah. Gre- so it's gre- just a fluke about our Facebook page. That's yeah. just a fluke. <laughs> Gre- greetings, greetings, brothers. <laughs> I say to you. Wow. And to the sisters, you know, one in five, that's cool. One in four, maybe more. You know, one in two, maybe you. So, so speaking of speaking of the fe- speaking of the female body uh, and and Zoe Saldana, I know it's not something particular to her, and she she's not to blame for this. It's it's endemic to Hollywood, but. Columbiana and the movie she was in last year, The Losers, have had two particularly distinct visuals in the trailer, which which really bugged me. And that is of Zoe Saldana firing either an assault rifle or a rocket launcher or something from the hip, like a, a rocket launcher that weighed about as that weighed about as much as she did, just slinging it from the hip as if it were, I don't know, like a sack of laundry or something, and. And that's just, I mean, it, it's a little silly to complain about Hollywood's disrespect for the physics of weapons and explosives, so, or, or to, make, to make an item of, of her as, as really the, the poster child for that. But it's just, I, I just can't buy into it. I did, like, grown men, 220-pound Navy SEALs don't fire weapons like that from the hip. They load them from the shoulder, and they brace themselves, and they... It, 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 I, and there's uh, often, yeah, and there's often a team of, like, three Navy SEALs that's responsible for working that weapon, right? Like, that's like, yeah. uh, you know, lo- for loading it and, uh, you know, arming it and, and then firing it. That could be that could be three guys. Yeah, you know, it's funny, like, the, the idea that, uh, you know, the idea that a, a woman Zoe Saldana size there's a close quarters fight at the end of Columbiana. I don't know if you saw it, but it's kind of like it's a it's a fight in a bathroom. It's kind of like the fight in the bathroom in the Born Identity, uh, mm-hmm. and it you know involves towels and items that you'd find in a bathroom. I think someone stabs someone with a toothbrush or something like that. And um, and but th- but it also involves a lot of erging and like and holds and like Zoe Saldana escaping from holds, not in the ways that you'd expect, but by like rah, you know, throwing throwing the guy who weighs easily twice as much as she does off of her. And like being small and lithe has certain tactical advantages in in close quarters fighting, right? But one of the, but being stronger than the other guy is not one of them, you know. And like acting that it's a, it's almost disrespectful in a way. Um, to say that the in ways, a way, <laughs> in a way, uh, it, it's almost disrespectful in a certain respect <laughs> to to um, uh, to say that that the way that Zoe Saldana kicks ass is the same way that you know the guys in the Expendables kick ass. Like she has she has a different way of kicking ass that's that's unique to her and probably involves uh, invasion and superior speed, right? It's- it's disres- it's disrespectful in that it presumes it presumes attributes which a which a real human being of that of that size and strength could not demonstrate. Right. There, well, John, there, there you're forgetting ways- that in, into each generation as Zoe Saldana is born. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I didn't I mean, mean here's that. Here's the thing. Sorry, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go, there, Pete. Okay. So the thing, the other half of it that really irritates me is that, like, yeah, movies characters all the time do things that are tremendously in, like unrealistic in terms of strength and such. But when a male character does it, almost all the time, like, they find a guy who looks strong to do it, right? Like, they get a big, strong dude to, like, swing the car into a, into a house. Even though the guy couldn't do that ever, he's still, they're still saying, still saying like, the quality of strength is, and physical strength is, like, an important quality for what we're trying to say in the scene involving putting this car into this house. Whereas, like, when they make women into action heroes, they still cast these women who are so slight, right? Like, let me see, like, a woman who actually looks like she's strong, right? Like, I mean, I haven't seen Colombiana, so I don't want to say Zoe Saldana isn't that woman. But, like, um, you no, know, she's no, there's she's a lot no, of... She's no Demi Moore in G.I. Jane, you know, knocking out the... Yeah, or, like, Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2 or, like, any of that. But even so, like, there's a lot of, like, you know, there's a lot of strong women out there. And I don't mean strong female characters. I mean, like, bench press 220, like, women, you know, like, strong women um, who could go out there and do stuff. And, and like, I, I just feel like it does women a disservice because it doesn't, for them, draw the connection between, like, be feeling physically capable and, like, actually being physically strong. Because a lot of the women who are really, really slight and are on TV 
I don't really sincerely believe that they could be that strong. And I don't mean as strong as their characters. I just mean like rel- strong relative to like other women who are like, you know, that, that are fed and stuff. I don't want really to be a jerk about it. Because I know that there are a lot of women who are just naturally slim, and they're, they're just, you know they have a lot of physical capability. But like, let's let's see some some women who have some you know muscles that can do stuff. You know what I mean? It's, a, like, it's another, not the it's tiny little arms. Yeah, it's another facet of I mean the general unrealistic body image. Just like it's just like it's unrealistic to present this as the sole standard of of physical attractiveness. It's unrealistic to present this as not only physically attractive but also you know superhumanly strong as well, capable of flinging people off you in sort of a Hulk smash type of uh, type of strength as opposed to the uh, as opposed to the the many more realistic ways that you know a trained fighter would know how to escape from a grab like that which would involve you know using leverage shrugging in grappling and then you know applying a hold or a or a pain point of some sort yeah i mean i know that there's a lot of examples a lot of counter examples but i think that they tend to exist kind of in an independent place like they, they exist in sort of separate leadership circles right like like you're much more likely to come across a woman who is like very physically strong in say like a sci-fi or fantasy story like an actress who like has a bunch of like physical strength than you are in like a sort of usa network show or like a, a sort of like you know first run hollywood movie right like um just because fiona from burn novice burn notice can be like you know blown around by the wind does not mean she can't get a lot of that <laughs> Yeah, it does not mean she can't fire a rocket launcher. Even Sarah Michelle Gellar in Buffy is, like, beefy compared to a lot of the women who are being superheroes today. You know what I mean? Like, very angular, small ladies, like, super spies, superheroes, stuff like that. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. I'm just saying that, like, you know, you want the the, the thick soul sister with the red bean and rice didn't miss her and whatnot. I don't know. (laughs) And right, Anaconda so, so, 4 don't want none unless you got buns on, is all I'm saying. So, so Fenzel, uh, having, having seen The Debt, which also has a, a female protagonist, I believe, is one of the... Uh, it, it's Helen Mirren in 1997. I don't know who plays her as, as her younger self. In Emily, the, Chast- Emily Chastain, I believe, is the name, I think. I don't remember Emily if her Ch- first name is right, but her last name is Emily Chastain. Yeah. Emily Chastain. So how, how does she fit on this spectrum? Like, are, are the physical feats that, she's, that she portrays things that someone of her physique should be capable of, do we think? Funny you should mention. Uh, it's pretty con- it was pretty conspicuous to me that uh, Emily Chastain, or I hope I'm getting her first name right because I don't have the Wikipedia that I am to be in front of me to check it. Um, I mean, she is, I believe she was a dancer before she was an actress, but she's very, very skinny. And one of the, and I don't really, it's kind of funny to say it, but like, I don't believe that she's Israeli in this movie. Um, <laughs> and, 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 it's, and it's not just because of just her. Right, like you have these three spies. You have the three Israeli spies who are uh, Sam Worthington, Emily Chastain, and like a guy who looks like an Israeli spy. Right, Je- Jessica, <laughs> and, like Jess- Sam Worthington Jess- doesn't. Yeah, what? Jessica Chastain. Oh, Jessica Chastain. Thank you, Jessica Chastain. Uh, I always I remember last name because of um, the soccer player, but uh, Jessica Chastain. <laughs> and 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 so there's a lot of scenes where it's like Sam Worthington or Jessica Chastain, who look totally white bread, right? Like he's Australian and she's like, you know, <laughs> a former dancer that does, I don't think she's Jewish at all, but they're interrogating the Nazi and the Nazi is like a shrewish old man with a long hooked nose. who's like trying to beat them with a tile. And it's like, it's like really <laughs> conspicuous that they don't look Jewish at all. And that the bad guy looks Jewish. And it was like, I, I, I made me, I feel like that was a choice that felt deliberate at least a little bit. Cause it's like, you're looking at a reflection of your own past and whatnot. But, um, there are definitely scenes where she's like in a towel or getting dressed and you just see just how skinny she is. And it's like, it took me out of it a little bit because I, 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 she didn't look like a soldier. She didn't look like somebody trained to do a whole bunch of crop MAGA. The thing is, I think in real life, she's probably capable of doing it because she's just like naturally slim and, and whatnot. And like, you know, not everybody has different genetics. And sometimes people who are very, very slim are very, very strong, right? Like that just happens. But the average person who looks like that wouldn't be able to do it. She doesn't have a ton of feats of strength that she does. In fact, it's kind of ridiculous how weak she is in the movie, but like that, I mean, that's just a whole other conversation. Dancers, dancers are like a special case of everything. Like serious dancers have incredible strength without a lot of muscle mass. And it's kind of amazing how they, uh, how they manage to do it, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. I hope I haven't been too terrible or objectifying in any of this stuff, but it's just like, I don't know it's 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 definitely yeah, there's definitely people who are really slim and really strong, but there's also people who like look strong because you can see their muscles because they have no t- tissue over any of them, right? Like not because the muscles are particularly effective. 
but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Parrish, you, you, you encounter more women who, who kick that, uh, butt on a regular basis than I do, you know, being involved in martial arts and whatnot. So maybe, maybe you notice a correlation that, that I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not seeing. I don't know. Well, I just of the of the of the women I teach with, and I think my school in particular is uh, ha, has more of a female presence than most schools. By which I think like fifteen to twenty percent female students, which you know in in the martial arts is is leaps and bounds. I think beyond, above the average. So of of all of them, I mean, it's a variety of body types. It's the same variety of body types that you would encounter just walking down the street, and the people who. Who tend to stick with it longest, you know, they they have at least a, a, a decent amount of, of muscle mass on them. But it's again, we, we teach a particular fighting style that is not muscle mass reliant. It's it's reliant on on leverage, grappling, uh, pain points on joint locks, and uh, just just good intensity and stamina. Right, 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 right. It's funny. It's like how um, if you watch an actual like Steven Seagal fight, he like barely moves his hands, right? When he's doing, it's not, that's not your stuff. It's a different, you know, he does the, he does Aikido. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, but Aikido is not a martial arts style. that's very demonstrative, right? Like it's a lot of leverage and quickness and like, and balance and, and, uh, and, and so it's sort of like, pop, 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 pop. you know, I don't know that that's the, that the whole idea that you have to jump kick somebody to hurt them is uh, spurious, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where <laughs> I'm going with this. I'm just saying that of, of all the products that they ask us to buy, like, an unrealistic female body image is not one that I'm interested in putting my credit card down on. Um, but then again, I'm probably not the target of these things. So or maybe I am. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I, I think we all are. <laughs> all of us. <laughs> 18 to 34-year-old college-educated men who watch Breaking Bad and listen to the Overthinking It podcast. Hey, guys, I think it may be time to tap out. <laughs> so That's let's. That's what my uh, shirt says because I'm, I'm such a cool, cool guy. <laughs> oh, you've got one of those too, man. They make such great fight gear. It's always sturdy and yes. stylish at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. My, uh, wow, yeah, I train with a pair of their gloves. You wouldn't believe. Um, so let's uh, let's leave it there. If you want to write in to take four dudes to task for talking about female body image without even having one woman on the show. The place to do that... <laughs> the place to do that is to call... Uh, uh, is to call 203-285-6401. Call or text 203-285-6401 or email podcast at overthinkingit.com. We've been incorporating more listener feedback lately. We didn't do it this week, but uh, it is a great feature and will uh, be a continuing feature. You can also... Uh, at reply us on the Twitters at uh, at overthinking it. So until next week, when we will come at you with another podcast, and maybe my computer will be repaired. Please visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com. This site will be subject to popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably deserves. Does someone want to say something funny for the? Uh... This podcast brought to you by Matthew Rather's crappy computer. Matthew Rather's crappy computer is there for all your crappy computer needs, from crashing while doing Photoshop to <laughs> losing your save for your emulated version of Final Fantasy VI. Visit crappycomputer.com slash overthinking it to get your free crappy computer download. Honk. <laughs> and we're... <laughs>